Great honor to introduce my boss. I'm uh, Trent Roller. I'm the director of the Human Service Agency, and uh, our agency is lead, along with great city partners and nonprofit partners in uh, addressing homelessness in San Francisco. And I get to introduce the mayor on his second annual State of Homelessness Address. Uh, without further ado, Mayor Gavin Newsom. Thanks, guys. And Apologize to everyone didn't have a seat. Thank you all very much uh, for allowing me to come back for a second year just to continue the process of holding myself more accountable than even all of you will hold me accountable to the issue of homelessness. And you know that uh, uh, I take that very seriously because I think there's no greater issue in the city and county of San Francisco. And I want people to know we're not taking our eye off the ball. Uh, this is not a passing interest. This is a full-fledged commitment uh, to end homelessness in the city and county of San Francisco. And let me assure you uh, my resolve that I am committed to doing that because I know it can be done. A lot of people do not accept that premise. Some say it's impossible to solve the realities and challenges of homelessness. The problem with that argument uh, is it's not consistent with evidence to the contrary. Uh, it's an ideological argument. It's not a legitimate argument because day in and day out, I think we can all agree, we see success stories. Uh, we meet people day in and day out whose lives have completely changed. That were out on the streets 5, 10, 15, 20 years and now are housed. We can solve homelessness. We must solve homelessness. And this city is committed to becoming the first city in the United States of America to lead by that example. So I want you to know that's the spirit to which uh, I'm here and the spirit to which I will be back, subject to, uh, well, usual travails of political life uh, next year uh, and hopefully the year after and then God willing uh, you'll be burdened with me for another few years uh, until uh, Angela decides she's had enough uh, and wants me out of office. Um, I want to just uh, for the purposes of this uh, very, you know, this is hard. I'm not going to read any speeches. I want to frankly talk a little bit more extemporaneously, and that's hardly going to be the coherent message that some of you may be looking uh, forward to, but it's one that I hope uh, illuminates at least the depth and breadth of what we're trying to achieve in San Francisco, because there really are so many moving parts to a homeless delivery system in this city, and there are things uh, that a lot of people are aware of, and I think there's some things we're doing that people frankly are not aware of. Uh, there's great success, uh, and there's areas of weakness and failure, and uh, I know that a lot of you are aware of them uh, and will hold me accountable to them, but I also uh, am going to be forthright, and I will acknowledge them to the extent uh, that I believe they are indeed failures. Uh, the backdrop, though, I think is important uh, to reference. I mean, the realities, the macroeconomic realities of where we are in this country. I don't want to get into a partisan ideological debate, but I've got to say, just factually, it's a very challenging time uh, to run a city, and it's a challenging time to run so social service agencies uh, in the United States of America. Uh, this year you saw again uh, the statistics uh, moving in the wrong direction on health care, on poverty, on challenges of education, on child care funding, housing funding broadly. This year we saw another 1.1 million Americans fall below the poverty line. Now 36.9 million Americans are living below the poverty line, which is a disgrace. 35.8 million this time last year. Things have gotten worse, not better in that context. We had 45 million Americans that I referenced last year that had no health insurance. This year, we have 45.8 
million Americans without health insurance. When I got into politics, it was 37 million people in this country without health insurance. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, whoever's in the White House or in the State House, the reality is these statistics continue uh, to move in the wrong direction. You've seen in this country income inequality grow to the likes of which I don't think any of us could have imagined coming uh, out of World War II where we had a vibrant middle class in this country. No one could have imagined in the mid-1950s we'd be where we are today in this country with income inequality. Uh, and simply stated, I don't know of another city in the country uh, where you see that acuity more than you do uh, in this wonderful city we call home, uh, San Francisco. I mean, the reality is in the city only 12% of us can afford housing. And those are ham family households with incomes of $139,000. That's to afford a median-priced home. And interestingly enough, I haven't gotten the new statistics, but in May, the median price of a home in San Francisco was 264% higher than the national average median price, or rather median price home uh, in the United States of America, 264% higher. You probably knew that, uh, but those numbers are staggering and I think put uh, the enormity of our unique challenge uh, in perspective. You've seen just in the last few years two-thirds of HOPE 6 funding being cut. Two-thirds of HOPE 6. The administration would love to just simply eliminate that program. And if you think it should be eliminated, I challenge you to go down to North Beach uh, to the new HOPE 6 site and walk around and try to explain the rationale for eliminating a program that should cross all the political ideological divides because it's a program that works in every context. Two-thirds has been eliminated. You've seen Section 8 housing vouchers. They've tried year in and year out to block grant the Section 8 housing vouchers, ultimately eliminating them. This year they changed the fair market uh, rates uh, arbitrarily as a way to eliminate. Now they're just doing it administratively. We've had almost 15% cut in just this last year in the Section 8 program, the city and county of San Francisco. They tried to cut by one half the 811 program through HUD, which houses disabled individuals. They tried to cut in half community development block grants this year, in half, over $2 billion across this country. They tried and were, relatively speaking, successful in cutting Medicaid, $15 billion. They increased co-pays by 60%. They started assessing fees that never existed before for poor children to see a doctor in this country. Child care funding has been cut. After school funding has been cut. Almost in every category that has a direct impact on our ability to achieve results and real success here in the city and county of San Francisco on social services, but notably on human services. They've moved in the wrong direction. And this is remarkable when you consider this country spends more than all other rich countries combined on defense. All other rich countries combined on defense and less as a percentage of GDP on poverty, disease, ignorance, and the environment. And I would relate that all of them are connected. Less than those countries is a percentage of our gross domestic product. So is it any wonder that we're seeing this divide? Is it any wonder you're seeing these statistics moving in the wrong direction? Therein was the backdrop that was set forth yesterday when Philip Mangano, the head of the Interagency Council on Homelessness, was out here with representatives from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we released a report, 24 cities that were surveyed in this country, that showed, surprise, surprise, 12% increase in the number of people trying to get food 
in the United States of America, a 6% increase in the number of people trying to get into shelters in the United States of America. They've been doing the survey for 21 years. They've had 15 formal surveys released every single year. It's the same direction. So I'd argue continue to do what you've done, you'll get what you've got. Play in the margins. You only have 800,000 people losing their health insurance as opposed to 1.4 million Americans that lost their health insurance the year prior. I don't want to fail more efficiently. And I don't think you want to fail more efficiently. It's time for real change. Well, that's what we're trying to offer here in San Francisco under that excruciatingly challenging backdrop. We're trying to offer a different way and in turn show the rest of the state and the rest of the country that we can turn things around. Now, we're hardly perfect, and we don't have exclusivity to the truth. I certainly don't. I don't have all the answers, but I continue to say, and you, I think, continue to believe the answers are out there. But we have to have the courage to try new things. Again, continue to march down this path. We'll get what we've got. So we've got to have a backdrop where you're willing to work with me, and this is my challenge to you, to allow me to succeed, but also to fail in a way where we can learn from those mistakes and work together to move in a new direction. The problem with politics today is that we're unwilling to allow politicians to fail because failure predisposes an inability to do one's job on that topic or any other topic to a degree that we become risk adverse, we play in the margins, and we all become the same, and you can't stand us. Because four years later, nothing really changes because we're so cautious. We don't want the bad headlines. We become sort of staid. Our language is no longer passionate. That cannot happen. And I will not, to the extent that I've got a few years left, allow that to happen on the issue of homelessness. That's why we did, and I know because I'm looking at a lot of faces, what we did a couple of years ago with that initiative to convert cash to guaranteed access of services. I understand how controversial that is. And I always said, if it was moving in the wrong direction when we started implementing it, make your case and we'll make adjustments. But I've got to tell you, and I can say this with some objectivity, that we've done a very good job with that program. And a lot of lives have changed dramatically because we had the courage to change in San Francisco the way we're doing business. Now, don't get me wrong. Not in every single case have we succeeded. And you have brought to my attention, and I've had the opportunity to meet people that have slipped through the cracks. People have been stuck in the shelters for too long that are waiting, waiting, and waiting. I get that. And there's some people that have been housed that it's not everything they hoped it would be. But I can tell you, the overwhelming majority have benefited greatly from that program. Do you know, since I took office, this program, which we're now referring to as a housing first model, since that's what it's all about, moving away from the shelters to expanding housing opportunities, has now housed 1,000 855 individuals since we took office. That's not bad. People have the dignity of a key, a lock, and door on the house. 1,855 units have been produced under, the, under this Housing First model. Over 1,100 specifically, 1,101 to be precise, under the Care Not Cash program itself. And by April of next year, and this is not insignificant. Every single person on that program will be afforded housing without exception. 526 units of housing will come online 
526 by April of next year. And that does not include, incidentally, the 106 units of housing that we're putting online next week at the Plaza Hotel. That's in addition to the 526 new housing units at four different locations that are being put online. So we are moving at an extraordinary pace where we have been moving thoughtfully. We're now moving even more aggressively through April of next year. That's not insignificant, and I think that's something we can all be proud of, because that's thousands of lives that will qualitatively change. And it's not just the lives of the individuals in the units. It's the lives of their friends and neighbors. It's the lives of their loved ones. It's the lives of their sons and daughters and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters and godkids. Their lives will have changed as well. Ninety-five percent of everybody that's in this program, this Housing First program, 95% are still in housing. People say, well, people are service resistant. They don't want housing. Nonsense. 95% are still in the housing units that have been afforded. People need the stability of housing. We know how to solve homelessness. It's housing and wraparound supportive services. It's not or. It's and. You've got to deal with the underlying reason people are out in the streets in the first place. And that's why we've got the behavioral health roving teams. That's why we've got the case management. Not as intensive as we'd like in every site, but substantially more than otherwise would have been afforded had we continued to distribute cash and hope things got better when we knew for a fact they were getting worse. 27% of people under our CAP program, the County Adult Assistance Program, as you know, made up of four programs, PAYS, CONCEPT, and GA. 27% were self-declared homeless when we started the program. Now just 6% are declared homeless. 84% reduction. Brand new number I got last night in the caseload. 2,100 person decline since we started. I remember my critics. <clears throat> Do I remember my critics saying, the care will never be there. This is a bunch of, that's, this is pure politics, just another politician. They even had budget analysts do analysis saying it's absolutely impossible. They said there's no way you could predict even a 50% decline in caseload. We said, all right, we think about 40, 84% decline. That's extraordinary. Now, I get it. What's happened to everybody? Well, we know that 1,101 folks are in housing, and we know that these other housing units are coming online. But what's happened to the others? Have they gone on? themselves to find housing independent of the city. Well, we're analyzing that because, again, I'm open to argument, interested in evidence. And we'll have that report done very shortly. And if there are gaps, we'll acknowledge them and we'll try to address it. But there are a lot of lives that have changed, and I think we all should be very proud of that effort and that initiative. And I want to just thank uh, Dorothy and Trent, Dawn, and everyone at uh, the Human Services Agency that have put up with a lot uh, to get through this. I, I, I'm paid to put up with a lot. Uh, they're paid to put up with a little. Uh, but uh, they've had to put up with a lot as well. And, and I honor them for the outstanding work because this is an order of magnitude change. Again, we're not talking about playing in the margins from where we were to where we are today. And I think the foundation is laid to do so much more. A year ago, we just started doing outreach in the city and county of San Francisco. Let me repeat that. We just started to do outreach in San Francisco. I joke all the time. I said the outreach policy in San Francisco was really in reach. When you came into a shelter or into a service provider, then we would outreach our hands over the desk and give you some papers. That was outreach. 
That's not my definition of outreach. Outreach is actually getting out on the streets. Katz did a great job, but it was mostly reactive, people calling and picking people up. We didn't have proactive outreach in San Francisco. Well, we put 10 people out on the streets. We now have 13. We budgeted for 20. We're taking time. We want to hire the right people, and we're going to have all 20 up and running. The 13 have been focused disproportionately on the central city, sort of a 60-square-block area around the Civic Center and the Tenderloin. We're going to be expanding that this year, January, our outreach to the Castro area, south of Market area, more broadly speaking, to the Mission area, and we will have some roving teams that will work at the rest of the city, from zero to 20 outreach workers in 23, 24 months. That's a pretty good start. We can do more, but I'll tell you, even with the limited resources, we've done a lot. 826 people that had no direct case management now have the benefit of intensive case management because of these outreach workers. 173 people since we started this program are now housed that were not housed otherwise because of those 13 individuals. 100 people, and by the way, this is a conservative number, now have methadone access that never had methadone access because of these outreach teams. And I'll tell you something that is not going to be statistically um, available or transparent. A lot of people feel a sense of hope, even if they haven't been connected in substantive ways, because they've gotten to know these folks. And they know that someone cares. They know that someone's got a green jacket that's out there day in and day out. They know their names. And they say, well, we're not ready yet. We're not ready yet, Joe. But maybe two, three months from now, they may be ready. Six months from now, a year from now. And they feel a sense of hope, hopefulness. And that is critical. That's the intangible of this outreach effort as well. And I want to just acknowledge uh, their extraordinary work. We're really, i, I got to tell you, that I walk the streets with these guys, and they're celebrities out there because uh, everybody knows them. Uh, so thank you to all the outreach workers. They're so successful that we, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and myself, uh, decided to give them resources they never had, and that's their own hotel. Uh, because they needed to say to give people something immediately. There's nothing more frustrating. I want to help you. Hey, you got to show up next week at six o'clock. What do you mean? That's not help. I need help now. Well, there are 71 stabilization units at the Coronado that they can use at any time. And obviously, there's a lot of turnover there, so it's not just exclusively 71 people, but now they have access to their own hotel to do what they need to do. And I'd like to find more resources so that they have more uh, units, and I'd like to think it's not just stabilization units. I get that. More transitional, obviously, ultimately uh, permanent supportive housing. Uh, but needless to say, uh, that's something that we committed to, that we followed through on this year, that I think is making a difference. We talked a lot uh, last year, or two years ago, during the mayoral campaign, about senior housing. And no one was really talking about it until a candidate for mayor started bringing it up, and that was Angela Aliotto, who's here today. Angela made this a priority, and she said what we all knew and believed but weren't doing, that is, it's utterly unjust and immoral that you'd have 70 or 80-year-olds living on cots and mats in our shelters. I mean, it's one thing that anyone has to live in any of our shelters. It's altogether different 
that if you're a senior, that we don't have the dignity and respect and the resources in this city, this state, and this country to provide you the decency of housing. Sure, to put an initiative on the ballot because none of us were doing anything. The initiative won overwhelmingly. Then we sort of dusted that off and we said, boy, how do we make this so? Well, working with Angela, we've made a lot of progress. She's not satisfied, nor am I, because we have a lot more work to do. And I know there's a gentleman who's a great advocate for seniors that was outside saying, hold to your promise, Mr. Mayor. And he is right. But I won't necessarily say we're wrong. We have good intentions. We have more work to do. And we're going to get there. Since that initiative and since we began this process in October of last year, we have moved 150 seniors into permanent housing. That's 58% of all the seniors we identified 60 and over when we started. That's not bad. But we got more work to do. The interesting thing, and this is something I never imagined, is that every single senior in our shelter, and there may be a few exceptions, I always get that. So when I say every, everyone finds that one person that we did, has been contacted for housing, but many are refusing the housing. That's why we're only at 58%. That's why I say we're not completely wrong. Good intentions, but a lot of people don't want to give up a portion of their income for housing. So really this is a tough policy question and I don't have all the answers. Do you time limit shelter beds for seniors? New York tried to do that. That seemed mean-spirited. We're going to kick you out of the shelters. Or do we come up with a different strategy where we reduce the cost for those seniors so that they're paying no more than 30% of their income for housing? I like that idea. And that idea is something we're going to push into the new year. That's not going to get everybody out. And I know what's going to happen. This is never. Well, why just for seniors? What about me? I've been in a shelter 15 years. I, that's why nothing seems so easy, or nothing is so easy uh, in San Francisco. But I think if we can work together and say, look, let's start here with people 65 and over first, 60 and over second. See what we can do. But let's get our seniors the dignity of housing. Let's fulfill Angela's vision. Let's fulfill our mutual obligation uh, on senior housing in San Francisco. We're committed to doing that. The second announcement earlier this year in February was about women. Angela didn't need to do a ballot initiative on this, but she made sure we focused on it. Uh, and many, many of you have been down at Women's World at MSC South. And I don't even like the name Women's World because it suggests some other planet, uh, something else. I mean, we're all in this together. You know, I always joke, I say, uh, we know how to multiply. We recognize that we have a mutuality all together. The administration seems to think, in terms of their math, that one plus one is just a couple of ones. Uh, we in San Francisco recognize that mutual responsibility, the fact that we are all connected, many parts, but one body. Well, having this separate institution, Women's World, down in MSC South didn't make sense. So we committed in February to get all 33 of those individuals into housing, and we fulfilled that obligation at Mary Elizabeth Inn. All 33 of the people that were down there were given the opportunity to move into Mary Elizabeth Inn, and the overwhelming majority did. But we didn't stop there. At the time, we had a census throughout our entire shelter system of 300 women. We now have 155. 
That's a 48% decline in the overall population. It exceeds the commitment we made to women's world. But again, it's not good enough. I don't think women should be in shelters either. Seniors, absolutely. First, women right behind. We need to do more and do better. The greater challenge of women, they all want the shelters, not our seniors necessarily, but we are, they want the housing, but we don't have enough housing yet. So I recognize that we've got to do better and do more in the subsequent years uh, to advance this and make sure that people that are backfilling, because women's world still exists, folks. It's just not the same 33 people. It's other people that have moved into that shelter. And by the way, I'd love to shut that down, just as I loved shutting down our second largest shelter in San Francisco, and none of you protested. That's an amazing thing. And the reason Angela is applauding is she recognizes in that 10-year plan that the only way you're going to solve homelessness is not to warehouse the problem. And what that 10-year plan is all about is not about expanding shelters. It's about shutting our shelter system down. Politicians too long have gotten away with answering the question of homelessness by saying, well, I'll just double the size of our shelters. And somehow they kept getting reelected. And you saw exactly what happened in New York, where you had at peak 36,000 people living on cots and mats six, seven, eight, ten years in the shelter system under Giuliani, and now Bloomberg going, my God, what a mess we have made. We've got to get people out of the shelters and into housing. So when we closed that shelter, it was, I think, a big deal. Didn't get a lot of attention, but it deserved to because that's a dramatic shift away from the old way of doing business to the new way of doing business. And remember, the only way we can do that is we developed more housing opportunities for people so that we did not decrease access to a roof, but we increased access to a room, again, with a key and a lock, a door, and dignity. Seniors and women, we have work to do. I get it. But nowhere do I feel we have failed more than with homeless families. And I acknowledge this. We, we can do more, and we must do more. You know, there was such a focus on single adults in the last year and a half. I get it. And that was... Uh, almost exclusively, I'll, I'll say, uh, my fault, uh, because we were focused on changing the way we're doing business. Uh, it wasn't out of benign neglect. No, we spent more money on families, but money's not a way of buying yourself out of a problem. Focus and accountability are. So what we did, and I want to just thank members of the Coalition on Homeless for doing, is we sat down with some homeless families and we put a human face on the issue. And we talked about their problems. And we recognized what so many of you already knew, or at least I began to recognize what so many uh, of you know. And that is families are not disproportionately problematic in terms of their behavioral health status or their drug and alcohol uh, uh, abuse. They're just simply poor in most cases. And that if that's the case, why is it that we're focused on the emergency solutions after people are displaced from their homes? Why aren't we more focused on preventing people from being displaced in the first place? Let me put that in perspective. 1,514 people were served by your $1.54 million last year in loans and grants to keep them in their housing units. 1,514 people, $1.5 million dollars. 
These numbers are important, and you'll understand in a second. We spent last year $3.7 million for families for 353 beds. Let's do the math. 353 beds cost us $3.7 million to do one-time grants in eviction prevention. We service 1,514 people for $1.54 million. More than half for more than quadruple people. I mean, this is insane. And I'm, I'm going to be acknowledged being part of this problem. And it's not, again, out of neglect. It's just not enough focus. So what we're going to be doing, and don't get me wrong, I think people you know, think we can do things overnight. Uh, we can't. But we're going to start putting more assessment teams into people's homes. New York is doing this. Boston began doing this. They're going in, and before a family goes out and says, boy, I need a month uh, of rent to keep my housing unit, we're going to find them before they find us by putting more assessment teams, going out in the community, reaching out into the homes so that we can provide the assistance in a more proactive way. This, I think, could produce really substantial results. The idea is to be, convert those dollars Again, it's not an or. We want to make sure everything's there. We don't want to take something away before we transition, but away from the emergency solution to the preventative solution. And you're going to see an aggressive effort to do just that. And by the way, working with many of the service providers, Salvatore and others that are here, uh, they're doing great work that want to change the way they're doing business, but need the guidance and resources from the city to move in a new direction. Uh, I think that's what we can do best. And that's what we can do more of. Eviction prevention, keeping people in their home. I don't want to see families in our shelter. 606 individuals were counted in last year's count, family members. Uh, a number of them living on the street, most in our shelters. Uh, it's inexcusable, some even in our jails, which is remarkable. And families, remember, are defined by a pregnant mother. Uh, that's a family. So it's not always exclusively five or six kids. It can also be a single adult that's about to give birth as well. Uh, we should have the dignity of that, uh, considering right now we have a birth tax in this country of $36,000 for every child that's born, and that's the deficit that they've inherited uh, because of the record number of deficits in this country. We don't need to burden them any further uh, with uh, the challenges of moving forward. So we're going to be doing more front-end work, a lot more. And uh, I get that uh, I've got to do a better job on the family side of this equation as well. And thank you, many of you, for making sure you're holding me accountable to that. Um, I want to disproportionately, you've heard me mention Angela, uh, but I think it's important to underscore what we're doing here in San Francisco fundamentally as we redesign our continuum of care towards this direct access to housing model. It's not easy, but it's a dramatic shift from where we've been. I believe this, and I think, ask yourself this. I've just sort of come to this conclusion that most of us in life overstate what we can do in a year, but wildly understate what we can do in a decade. That's why we put together this 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness in San Francisco. Not a 12-month plan. Not a 100-day plan. Not a first-term or even a second-term plan. But a realistic plan to set forth the challenge to all of us to move in a new direction. That has been shared by Angela Aliotto for the last year and a half, and she's done a remarkable job. Let me tell you why. 
The plan includes the development of 3,000 new supportive housing units. 1,500, that would be under our master lease program, and an additional 1,500 that would be owned. We have exceeded even our own expectations in terms of fulfilling that 10-year strategy. I gave you the numbers on the master lease side. They're staggering. 1,855, and we just started. We're going to do a lot more. But how about on the owned side? Matt Franklin's here from the Mayor's Office of Housing. Now, we did a good job, not great, in the last 12 months with 141 brand new housing units that fulfill part of the goal in the 10-year plan. We have another 154 that are currently under construction that will be complete within the next 10 to 12 months. But wait one moment. That's good. That's not great. 500 are in the planning stage as we speak. 500. And you're going to start seeing the development of those units in queue probably the first month or two in January, February of 2007. 500 in the queue. So that's close to 900 or so units towards that 1,500 unit goal just in a framework of three to four years when we have a 10-year plan. That's pretty good progress. And I think we should all be very proud of that progress. And part of that progress has been made. We should have, someone should clap. I think it's good. Big part of that, big part, has been the willingness, sometimes begrudging, willingness of many of you in this room, service providers, that are willing to allow us to move in this new direction. I know it's difficult. Again, away from this continuum towards this direct access to housing model. Consequence of that, I don't know if you've seen this, but HUD just came out with their McKinney grants this year. We received a record amount of dollars. Let me repeat that. More money than last year, more money than the year before, more money than the year before that, which is not insignificant. The backdrop of all those other federal cuts, at least on this front, we got more money, $17.3 million in McKinney grants. About a million dollars more, about a little less, than last year. We got a bonus of a million dollars under the Samaritan Initiative because of this direct access to housing model. We wouldn't have gotten that unless we were willing to move in a new direction. I'm proud of that. And about two additional million dollars are being redirected from where we were doing business to now a new way of doing business. So that's $3 million new dollars of that $17.3 million in the McKinney grant that is going to this, again, supportive housing model in San Francisco. I'd like it to be seven of the 17.3. I know that some of you are a little nervous every time I say that, but just know, until you kick me out, I'm going to keep pushing you, keep pushing you. Don't act like you're surprised next year when we do the grant that I didn't give you enough warning. I'm warning you. I'll keep warning you. I want to keep moving it in that direction. We need to do that because we know what works. So I want to, again, just acknowledge the 10-year planning council, acknowledge the stewardship and leadership of Angela, and all of you that are willing to step up and help us with that application. Congratulations to each and every one of you for this record amount of dollars, or at least in recent memory, a record amount of dollars. Finally, two additional things. This has been very controversial. And that is this notion that people that want to leave the city to reconnect with their families should be given the resources to leave the city to reconnect with their families. Now, I confess, it's kind of like putting these cameras up 
in San Francisco. Uh, it's not intuitively where I'd like to go because I see the perception uh, as being negative, punitive. We're going to kick you out. Sort of the, I don't want to disparage Reno, but you know I know what they're doing up in Reno. Uh, Nevada, the Greyhound Station, been there, seen it. Uh, a lot of you have written about it. Uh, I don't like that. We're not in to kick people out. But increasingly, in the first year I was in office, I was hearing all these examples, these stories of people saying, hey, I want to go see my uncle back in Seattle, or I want to see my brother in Atlanta. How can I get there? And we're saying, well, there's really no pot of money to do that. I, I don't know. Maybe I can you know, give you 48 bucks or something for a ticket. But that didn't make sense. There was, I find out, through Trent Shop, some process, if you get in the CAP program, you sign up and you do all these things, maybe one day eventually they'll give you a ticket to go. Uh, but that didn't make sense either. So we started this new model. And that new model is allowed, and I think, you know what we did? We told Kevin Fagan of the Chronicle. We said, Kevin, just randomly go out. Hey, go, go visit these families. If we're wrong and these folks are going nowhere, then I need to know and do a hit piece on me. Say, boy, that's a mean spirit of policy, and then I'll try to adjust it if it's wrong. But what he discovered, if you may have read it in the Chronicle, is a lot of lives have changed. Not all of them, but a lot of lives have changed because, again, we have the courage to change. 887 people, as of yesterday, have reconnected with their family members. That's not bad. Close to 1,000 people have gone back home. And, you know... We can talk about how caring and wonderful we all are. No one's going to be more caring than a member of a family. They're going to give them, and I'm sure they've had I mean, all kinds of issues, right? May have been that disconnect in the first place. But no one's going to work harder for someone than a mother or father or a son or daughter, I think. Or a broader family structure, which is going back to your neighborhood and your home and your community. So I'm proud of the program. Only about, I think, a dozen or so folks have come back to the city a couple uh, I met so thanks a lot for the trip up to Portland um, hey fair, fair enough whatever we can do uh, help you out uh, that's fine too uh, but most people are taking advantage of it in ways that uh, it was intended to be and that Homeward Bound project uh, I think is something that distinguishes us something else we're going to do that I think will distinguish the city uh, and this is maybe uh, a, this may be, this is a big missing link and may, it's not going to complete because this work is never ending but it's part of the process of reform is we need a medical respite center in San Francisco. We haven't had one. Uh, we need one. You know, a lot of people are being discharged from San Francisco General Hospital and they don't have transitional housing. They don't have permanent supportive housing. There are medical conditions that are exacerbating uh, their ability to get back on their feet. They need a little bit more of intensity of care, but there's no place to go. And so what we're doing this year, in 2006, uh, I think will be a national model when it's complete. We're going to put a medical respite center, a minimum of 75 beds. I'd like to see up to 100 beds working with the hospitals to help offset the costs by getting the medical community to step up to the plates and charity care and the like to make sure we staff it appropriately uh, and that we have people, uh, we give people a place when they're discharged so they can get back on their feet and they turn their lives around. This is a big thing. We did it with the detox center down at McMillan, or the sobering center, or the sobriety center, whatever you guys want to call it. Uh, it's pretty good. We've seen some success, but we need a medical respite center. Uh, stay tuned. This time next year, I'm going to talk to you about how happy I am about it, I hope. 
One final thing, and then I have just four quick people to introduce, and I know your time is limited. It's now 40 minutes I've talked. I told Angela 30, but I really meant 45. So it's going to be 48. I'm really proud of this, this Project Homeless Connect. And, you know, I didn't know what it was going to become, and I'm not sure what it will be a year or two or three years from now. But, you know, we came up with this crazy idea that we needed to get the bureaucracy and politicians back out on the streets to reconnect with the people that we're serving. It seems so simple, but you know what? A lot of times we get caught up. You should hang out with me in room 200. There's five doors, ten security. I could think the world's going perfectly well. I wouldn't have a clue what's going on in the streets. I'm so isolated. Well, there are other parts within the city family where people are equally isolated, 15 stories up or someplace completely removed from where most of the clients are, and they just think everything's going great. And the answer to all our problems is just more money, more money, more money. But we don't recognize we're not solving the problem. So the whole idea was, in October of last year, was to get all of us back out on the streets. And we got about 250 folks, many of you in this room, the majority of you, I think, in this room. And we said, look, let's go out and let's connect with people. Let's bring our desks out on the streets. Let's get our computers out on the streets. Let's sign people up for SSI. Let's sign people up for CAP program. Let's deal with their unique issues. Let's try to get them those IDs that they can't get because they've got problems with the DMV. Let's get their records expunged because they're having trouble getting housing because they've got felonies on their records. Let's try to do these things and let's do it collaboratively, not just one-off. Let's not give people a piece of paper and say, well, here are the 10 service providers. You're on your own. And we went out and we did that and it was an amazing success. Not just for the clients, but for all of us. We had it, we downloaded afterwards in a room not dissimilar size to this, and people were raising their hand, and one person said the most magical thing, the greatest thing anyone could ever say. Said, thank you for reminding me why I took this job 18 years ago. And I thought, nothing get better than that. They sort of reconnected to their purpose. And I would argue when you work in city government, or you work in the nonprofit sector, it's all about purpose. And so from that, so many of those folks said, hey, can I bring my friends to the next one? Can I bring my cousin? I have coworkers. Can we do it? And the next one, we didn't have 250 city workers. We had about 250 volunteers and about 150 core city workers. And the one after that, we had about 500 volunteers. And then Project Homeless Connect 4, we had about 600 volunteers. 700, 800, all told, can you believe this, 13,114 people have volunteered to go out on the streets to help other people. That's amazing. That's not bad. I'm proud of that. And these are people that feel that they can add some real value. And we just are scratching the surface. Think about that. We are not even close to what we're capable of doing. Not even close. Not only though are we doing it in San Francisco, guess what? They stole the idea. And I believe in habitually stealing good ideas. So I appreciate they embraced it. And they did it nationally on December 8th in 26 cities across this country. That's a pretty extraordinary thing from San Francisco. Now the rest of the nation is doing it. What's also amazing about it is these volunteers from all walks of life. Do you know 188 of your organizations in the nonprofit field have participated in Project Homeless Connect? 100 companies. You know, two years ago they were doing billboards 
attacking us and attacking people. Now they're coming in and they're giving people new, new, new glassware. They're giving people massages. They're giving people the opportunity. This was incredible. I don't know if any of you saw this. FedEx. The opportunity to do Christmas cards, Hanukkah and holiday cards and the like. To send via FedEx to their family members. 120 people. You saw these little kids writing to their families that they hadn't seen. And that was their holiday gift. There was no way to reach out and do that. FedEx stepped up and did that. Lens crafters gave hundreds of free eye exams and free classes. We had wheelchairs being repaired. It looked like a mechanic station. People had no other mechanism to get their wheelchairs repaired. They had the opportunity to get their wheelchairs prepared. I think it's a beautiful thing when you're listening to Vivaldi, because San Francisco State has got a little orchestra, while people are eating different type of food, where people are getting their feet washed and podiatrists are there to take care of their medical needs, and then they're getting a massage as they wait to get a medical exam, as they wait to get an opportunity for stabilization units, or to get into that methadone clinic that they never could get into, but then right away can get into, or to get housing. And we, you got, we, well, I know, we got work to do on that. We even had a Sprint do a bunch of free long-distance phone calls. People reconnecting that could never have made those long-distance phone calls. 500 just on December 8th alone. I think there's just a lot to be proud of. And someone who deserves all the credit is Alex Turk in my office that has put that together. A great success. It's a great success. I mean, I'm just looking at these numbers. 1,542 people were in the last Project Homeless Connect were served. We had 550 phone calls. We had 133 people get SSI. We got 188 clients on the CAP program. We got 66 clients that met with one-stop employment service, otherwise may not have got it. I like this. 261 people got flu shots. They may not have been able to get flu shots. You got 165 people to deal with their ID issues, to get them DMV, to get their ID so they can get all these services programmed. 12 clients tested for HIV that were willing to do the test. You had 235, I was wrong, that got vision care. It's amazing to see the line, including this young man. People said they don't have the ability to get glasses, like the rest of us in many cases. 94 people received uh, methadone detox slots, like that, just like that. It's hardly the answer, but when you can get, I, I'm going to steal a phrase, but when you can rally the armies of compassion, when you can get real people and rally their passion and connect them to, again, a sense of purpose, collective purpose, then you can move mountains. I really believe. I'm not just being an idealist. Uh, I believe pragmatically we can turn things around. So I'm very excited. It's, it's, a, it's a good program, and we're going to make it better, and we're not giving up, and I hope the next mayor continues it and doesn't disband it just because my name was associated with it. Yep. I, uh, I want to give you, that's basically where we are, a, a quick 47 and a half minute assessment but now uh, as we did last year uh, and only because this made me happy last year uh, I'm going to be selfish with the last five or so minutes I want to just recognize some folks that are here that um, that have uh, that have uh, I think benefited from some of your collective work uh, and whose lives are moving in a new direction um, hardly can guarantee their lives will be made perfect 
None of ours and none of us can guarantee that. But I think they have the tools to succeed because of some of the work you guys have been doing. Um, where's Marie Salazar? Marie is here. This. Now, Marie, you were part of Project Homeless Connect. Yes, I was. And you were homeless on and off the streets for the last nine years. Yes. You got stabilization services, yes. temporary housing in April. Yes. And then on September 12th, what, what day was that? My birthday. All right. You moved into the Mary Elizabeth Inn. You're now on SSI. Yep. And you are moving into permanent housing on your birthday. Yep. As your gift, Christmas gift or birthday gift to I yourself. To you. That is awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> you ever think you need to give yourself a birthday gift of housing? It's an amazing, amazing story. Andrew, where are you? Andrew Horton? How you doing? Andrew became homeless after he had a stroke. Through city services, you moved into a shelter for about 90 or so days, and you've been on Social Security. Just recently, and I've been there, this is a good place, you just moved into the, the Raymond or Ramon Hotel, which just opened this fall. That's not a bad place. You, you enjoying it? Better on Street. Andrew Horton, congratulations. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here, and congrats. We've got three more folks. Patricia Willis. Where's Patricia? Hey, Patricia. Get up here. All right, Patricia. In 1993, working single mother of three, you lost your housing. And for a while, you and your children lived with friends at the emergency shelters, and then you separated from your children. You became seriously ill, uh, which obviously made it very difficult for you to continue working. You worked, though, with Hope House, and the staff helped you set up independent living, health maintenance, and employment goals. And now you've been living at Hope House, still living there, and you're working, of all places, I can't visit you until the strike's <laughs> over, the Fairmont Hotel, uh, the security dispatcher. So congratulations. <laughs> Betty uh, Trujillo, where are you, Betty? There you are. How are you? Now, she, Betty, and her four-year-old son have been homeless for about two and a half years. Uh, you work with Compass Family Center, and you got into a temporary shelter. And then you moved into permanent housing, and you qualified for CalWORKs. Now, you and your son are living in the Dudley Apartments. And your son goes, this is pretty good, goes, uh, goes to year-round Head Start program, and you plan to take classes in the spring to get a certificate in your area of obvious expertise uh, as a good mother in child development. Congratulations. Happy holidays for you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And finally, um, Tony and Williams, where are you? There you two are. You're not in front of me. Well, let me tell you, okay, you're going to do that in one second. But I want to talk about you guys. Uh-oh. How long have you been married? Uh, 13 years this month. Well done. This month. Happy anniversary. <laughs> now, check this out. This is another through the Project Homeless Connect. Tony and Bill are living in Golden Gate Park. Living in the park. How long are you living there? Uh, 
off and on 20 years. Whoa. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing stuff together. I thought they were And uh, both of you on SSI, uh, you had some health problems, uh, but you first made contact. Uh, uh, at Project Homeless Connect, Homeless Connect, which is amazing. Outreach workers, uh, John and Linda. Where's John and Linda? Awesome. And you guys, these two guys got them into housing immediately. Immediately. Which is amazing. I was on medication because I'm, I'm full-blown HIV. My T-cells were 27 and then my rings were coming off my finger. But that day, I was on medication. They'd started me that day because they knew awesome. the doctor because my primary care doctor is right down below us. That's correct. Mr. Dolbeck. All right, Mr. Dolbeck. And now you guys are you guys are living in the Windsor. Yes, sir. How's it going? I, I'm happy. All right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's what I said. I appreciate it. No, go ahead. No. <laughs> hey, uh... 13 years in Golden Gate Park and like that because of two people, uh, their lives turned around. Uh, look, I understand what all you're thinking. Uh, that's good. We got a lot more work to do. Uh, but you know what they say? Every single person matters. Every life matters. Everybody's got a story. And our job, our goal is to make everybody else's stories a little bit better. And I hope we've done that this year. Uh, we look forward to doing more of that next year and years to come. I'm honored uh, to work with all of you, uh, those that agree with me, even those that disagree with me. Uh, I'm honored to work with you. I appreciate your advocacy, your constancy, your faith in one another, and your belief that we can collectively turn this around. Thank you all very much, and happy holidays to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thanks for coming out.